I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I'd like to apologize for what MSNBC has become. Again, I'd like to apologize again for what MSNBC has become. They fired Mehdi Hassan yesterday. He hosted one hour a week on Sunday nights and did streaming shows, and it might have been the best hour on that network, because while I don't know that I agreed with even most of what he said, he was not doctrinaire, and he didn't simply repeat what Maddow says, and he didn't pretend to be a moderate because being a Trump propagandist didn't work out that well for him like Scarborough does, and he didn't struggle to read a prompter full of Democratic Party talking points like Joy Reid does, and to my knowledge... He never fell asleep on the air like Andrea Mitchell does, nor caused the viewer to fall asleep like Hayes and O'Donnell do. And because they fired him, an Englishman of Indian Muslim descent, in the middle of a war and terrorism between Israel and Hamas that sometimes seems like only 30% of it is being fought on the ground and the rest of it is being fought in the world's media, MSNBC at least appears to have made up a story about reshuffling its weekend lineup to make more room for Michael Steele, former GOP chairman Michael Steele, and for Alicia Melendez, whose father you may know, and who in any ethical news shop in the world could not be on the air again until her father's situation was resolved. And now, Hassan will be a fill-in anchor because, well, damn it, they had 49 great hours of weekend programming and they had to cut one of them, didn't they? MSNBC does not have 49 great hours of programming a year. 
I do not know for certain why they fired him. I do not know if he said something about the Middle East they did not like. Although he said a lot about the Middle East, I think they did not like. I do not know if the timing was coincidental. I do know the people running MSNBC now, Cesar Conde, Rebecca Blumenstein from the Wall Street Journal, and Rashida Jones, who was only in charge of scheduling associate producers for midday shows, but is now MSNBC president and as such is only in charge of scheduling associate producers for midday shows. They are just dumb enough to have fired Mehdi Hassan during a Middle East conflict, but for something other than his opinions about it. They really are that dumb. Let's put it this way. They either fired him for his Middle East opinions during conflict in the Middle East, or they fired him for something else during conflict in the Middle East and thus made themselves look guilty of firing him for his Middle East opinions. Anyway, however, just as important as the continuing asinine and ignorant and sometimes flat out comical conduct of the management of MSNBC and NBC and NBC News, in fact, probably much more important, is the issue of personal integrity of the people at what is, God help us, the closest thing to a liberal news network in this country, while there are, what, 15 conservative ones and much of CNN and part of MSNBC? More important than the firing of Mehdi Hassan is the response from MSNBC stars about the firing of Mehdi Hassan. You want to hear what Maddow and O'Donnell and Hayes and Wagner and Reed and everybody else there said about this? Want to hear it again? Well, at least it sounds familiar. It's the same thing Maddow and O'Donnell and Hayes and Wagner and Reed said when Tiffany Cross was fired a year and a month ago, right before the midterms, largely because Tucker Carlson was mad at her and at NBC. And it's the same thing that Maddow and O'Donnell and Hayes and Wagner and Reed said when they actually put Trump on the first edition of Kristen Welker's Chuck Todd approved version of Meet the Press. And somehow they wound up fact checking him for less than a minute on TV and they held all the real corrections for one lonely post on their website. And all of it happened just weeks after Welker let herself be wined and dined by Trump's scum like Jason Miller right before the Republican debate in Milwaukee. Silence. I have told the story before that in 2009, the chairman of GE, who bruised like he had the skin of an immature grape, was ready to take the network offline, shut it down, because in trying to silence me, Fox News had turned to attacking him, Jeff Immelt, and his mommy, Mommy Immelt, was a Bill O'Reilly viewer, and she called up and yelled at her son. And in the crisis meeting in Jeff Zucker's office on the 52nd floor of 30 Rock, I was, and boy, did this surprise me, I was the moderate who said, well, just, let, just let's not mention Fox News for a few weeks and, and in the interim see if we can figure something else out. And Rachel Maddow made it quite loudly clear that if they tried to change a word of her scripts, she would quit on the spot. Because no one would ever believe that what she was saying had not been censored again. 
And I had a quick internal meeting with myself about that. And then I had a real life meeting with Rachel. And I said, you're right. But if we draw that line right now in the sand, we're going to lose. Just give me just as long as the French held out against the Nazis in 1940. Just give me 33 days. And if I can't come up with something workable, we can both quit on the air together and then go get really drunk. And then we hugged and I went to work and I found something workable. And that Rachel Maddow has been dead for a long time now. I mean, this is not an exaggeration. They are paying her $31 million a year basically for her name and for one show a week. And by the way, to that I say, good work, Rach. Next time, get $41 million. But if they are paying you $31 million a year and you are not okay with them firing Mehdi Hassan or Tiffany Cross or putting Trump on Meet the Press without fact-checking, guess what? They are not going to fire Mehdi Hassan or Tiffany Cross. And they are not going to put Trump on Meet the Press without fact-checking. And if you think that's too much of a reach and that management will always protect other managers first and profits and products last, okay, we'll try it this way. If Rachel Maddow wanted to just say, I'm not okay with them firing Mehdi Hassan or firing Tiffany Cross or putting Trump on Meet the Press, say it publicly, put it out in a tweet, leave it at that, do nothing, just say one sentence. Do you think they would fire her? The $31 million isn't for one show that she does or for any of the special coverage that she hosts. It's because they have made the same mistake with her that they made with me nearly 20 years ago. They let first me and then her become the entirety of the MSNBC brand. This info was from inside the 2021 negotiations to keep her there rather than let her go do something with Sirius or with Jeff Zucker somewhere. This was the message. Yeah, $30 million is a lot of money. If she leaves, we lose $300 million in brand value. $300 million is more than $30 million. So she is, in fact, in a better position now to defend her own principles than she was in 2009 when she threatened to quit on the spot if they edited out stories about Fox News. And by the way, she never did stories about Fox News. She is in a better spot. In fact, so are Hayes and O'Donnell. I mean, look, I was lead sled dog at MSNBC when we spun Rachel off from being my guest host to doing the 9 p.m. show, replacing Dan Abrams. I was still in the front harness when we then spun off my next guest host, O'Donnell, to his own show at 10 p.m. I was still there when we put Chris Hayes in as my last guest host, and I tried to take him with me when I left for current TV. I wanted him to co-host a second hour of Countdown with Eugene Robinson, and then once they both had enough anchoring experience, spin them both off into primetime shows. Me at 8, Chris Hayes at 9, Gene Robinson at 10, and then this other kid that I just put on TV for the first time nationally, some nervous kid from Jersey at 11. His name was... Uh, Steve Kornacki. The point is that not only should one of them or two of them or all of them be saying something right now, today, about what is going on at MSNBC, the replacement of original thought and anti-establishment, pro-contrarian opinion with pasteurized, processed, liberal TV, trademark, copyright, Comcast NBC 2023. <laughs> Not only should Maddow or Hayes 
or O'Donnell or Kornacki or somebody go out on a limb. But they could all go out on that same limb with absolutely no fear of it falling down or being sawed off behind them. It's not just that MSNBC has not launched a successful new show since they put Hayes into the primetime lineup in March 2013. It's that cable news has not launched a successful new show since MSNBC put Hayes on in March of 2013. CNN? Chris Cuomo. Fired. Just yesterday, he said he saw no difference between Biden and Trump. Don Lemon, fired. Fox, Tucker Carlson, fired. MSNBC, best of morning Joe weekend edition. The world's only 17 second long television show. When I spent a literal year trying to talk my bosses into giving Rachel Maddow a show on MSNBC when their responses were, Nobody will watch a woman anchor. And why do you want competition? You're a monopoly now. You're our tent pole. When they lied to me and they said they had hired her as a contributor, but they hadn't, and I had to hand her $437 in cash out of my wallet to keep her from going to CNN for $250. After all that, I finally convinced them all, but I had one last person to convince who did not think a Rachel Maddow TV show would work. Her name was Rachel Maddow. Look, she said, I live downtown in a studio apartment with no TV and with no real window. And a couple of years ago, I was dancing in a cell phone costume in front of a cell phone store in Massachusetts. I'm not certain what success might do to me. It might make me a terrible person. I talked her off that ledge. I'm not sure I should have. I am a capitalist. I once calculated how much I made from my 12, 13 years in cable news compared to sports. Sports, 5 million. News, 70 million. And as you know, if you have ever seen my real-life wardrobe, I still have most of it. Money is great. When I slammed Musk Thursday for telling advertisers and others trying to control him with money to go F themselves, I have to confess I felt a little guilt. Because the point of having the money is that you should say that to somebody at least once in your life. Not like Musk did, saying it to people who for some reason don't want their advertisements next to anti-Semitic and Pizzagate posts. No. Say that once in your life in defense of something or someone or for someone or something. When I finally left MSNBC in 2011 after they breached my contract over that suspension they had to rescind, I could have stayed. There were a thousand reasons to go. There was one reason to stay, and that was, as Rachel said, when she did not quit two years earlier over the Fox News thing, Keith, this is the best platform we will ever see. And I quieted that thought because I knew, well, I'm gone. But Rachel will always stand up when it counts. Always is a relative term. But the primary reason I booked and took the chance and the money, a lot of money again. Again, money good. The reason I took the chance with Al Gore's network was the writing was on the wall for me at MSNBC. For five years by that point, maybe more like six or seven, they had been trying to wear me out and trying to box me in. 
Like Edward R. Murrow's producer Fred Friendly once said, and no undue comparisons are being made here. When you live in a world of controversy, you will take fire from in front of you. When the fire is from those you have targeted, from your opponents, from your enemies, if it doesn't hit you, it is amazingly energizing. It keeps you going. On the other hand, Friendly said, if the fire is coming from behind you, it doesn't even really have to come near you to wound you. It is exhausting being shot at by your own side. Gradually, MSNBC peeled off the producers with whom I was comfortable. They banned my favorite guest, Marcos Melitzis, because Scarborough demanded it. They wouldn't carve my show out from the idiot NBC News president, Kappas, who had tried to suspend me and nearly got fired by his own lawyers because he did that. And they were beginning to review my guests and to suggest, hey, we do one of those special comments. Would be great if you had a Republican come on to reply. And I said, we already do that. And the president of the network, Phil Griffin, looked stupidly at me, more stupidly, and he said, what do you mean, buddy? And I said, we call that Fox News. But they wanted Michael Steele as a regular contributor to Countdown. And more panels, as they called them, four guests at a time. You used to do that on the old show in 98. It's a good exchange of ideas. You know, have Pat Buchanan on once a week, buddy. Just once a week. Or Joe. Joe would love something in prime time. You might even find he'd be easier on you behind the scenes. The next thing I thought I did not say. The next thing I thought was, check, please. The next thing I saw was Michael Steele and Pat Buchanan as contributors to The Rachel Maddow Show. This has strayed further and further, not just from the day's other news, but from the cancellation of the Mehdi Hassan show, and I'm sorry for that. I just think the context is important. The context of what began to happen at MSNBC in 2010 and 2011, and which has continued very slowly and almost imperceptibly into the approved liberal opposition. Always insistent, always pleasant, but never too loud like the guy who started all this. And more importantly still is the context of what MSNBC will do next time. Because obviously there will be a next time. And if you don't believe so, ask Mehdi Hassan or Tiffany Cross or whoever decided to cut a deal with Trump over containing the fact checking or worse still, whoever decided that even though Trump didn't demand anything, they should go do that anyway, preemptively, proactively, just to get on Trump's good side. There will be a next time, and God knows what it will consist of. And who is going to stop them? Who will even stand up and protest? Just just protest as Mehdi Hassan gets shot by fire coming in from behind him. And that's the really, really sad part. They could all get away with that. And at least Maddow could walk in today, right now, to Cesar Conde or to the president of the whole company if she wanted to and say... I just heard about Mehdi Hassan. I don't like this. Put him back on. In fact, put him on every day at 3 o'clock. You have 20 minutes to obey. Because Maddow and Hayes and O'Donnell can keep those jobs until they die. They are grandfathered in. They are literally irreplaceable. They don't make the money for the network that they used to. Nobody in cable does, but also nobody else is going to make more or even as much. And we know... 
Maddow has previously flexed her muscle in decisions that did not involve her show. People she didn't like began to disappear from MSNBC air and from its ranks of showrunners and producers within months of when I quit in January 2011. The reporter in the case told me she threatened to bail out of a New York Times profile in 2018 or 19 if I were mentioned in it. And I've wasted a lot of your time telling you how she vetoed my planned return there in 2020 and 21. But if there are three people at NBC, hell, if there are three people in news, if there are three people in television who can at least get away with a loud, pointed protest, hell, can get away with saying, if Manny Hassan goes, or if Tiffany Cross goes, or if we keep diluting our product down to badly rewritten Democratic Party press releases, the three of us, we're on strike. If there are three people in media, besides like Taylor Swift, who can say, we are standing on our principles and who will then live to tell about it, it's Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell and Rachel Maddow. Of course, for that, you've got to have principles. A Trump lawyer is cooperating just this side of flipping with the prosecutors in Nevada about the fake electors scheme there and political rights. There's a 543 word editorial that may have just upended the presidential campaign, and they don't mean it's good news for Trump. But I do have to put a postscript to the Mehdi Hassan cancellation first, and then I'll get to the actual news. A major comparison online yesterday was wrong. It was to the cancellation of Phil Donahue by MSNBC early in 2003. And guess what? I was at that one, too. I was a witness. And I've never gone into that story at length anywhere. So give me two minutes to do this now. I went back there as a fill-in to rebuild bridges for one week. Three shows in February 2003. Absolutely no expectation I would be staying or ever going back there again. I had a full-time gig with NBC for the Olympics. I was just helping out. They were short an anchor. They had no expectations. So the people I'd worked with just five years before, they told me the truth, and they had been planning to cancel Phil Donahue for months. They would have fired him even if Bush had suddenly left office or if Saddam Hussein had turned himself in to Dick Cheney personally. Phil Donahue's show was done at 30 Rock in New York with a live audience in a live studio with a live studio union. The rest of MSNBC, before, during, and after, not done with unions. The only reason it cost less to do the Phil Donahue show than it did to do Saturday Night Live was that they didn't have to build 20 new sets every week for the Phil Donahue show. And yes, it was the highest rated show on the network when they canceled it. And yes, they canceled it like hours before Bush started bombing Iraq. But it only got those ratings because they did carpet bombing of their own. They advertised the show everywhere all the time. Millions of dollars. His staff was two or three times larger than that of any other cable news show. So even as the top rated show on MSNBC, Phil Donahue was hemorrhaging money. Did Phil's anti-Iraq war views help? No. Probably sped up his cancellation. But they canceled all of primetime, all of the shows. They put on live war coverage, 
And oh, by the way, if they canceled Phil Donahue for being a liberal and anti-war, why did they give his time slot and half his producers to me? The Mehdi Hassan-Phil Donahue comparison is wrong because Donahue was canceled over money. Hassan was canceled over something he said. Okay, no more postscripts. More Trump scripts. Kenny the Cheese is singing again. CNN reported last night that their sources say state prosecutors have revealed that they have succeeded in, quote, securing the cooperation of a key witness who has agreed to sit down with Nevada prosecutors in hopes of avoiding prosecution there. It's not quite the same plea deal that Ken Chesbro took in the Georgia indictments, but it means that thanks to Ken's help, the fake elector scheme is now being prosecuted in those two states and Arizona and Michigan and New Mexico. The gag order is back in effect in New York, and I hate to fall prey to logical fallacy number one, but I keep thinking maybe it was all those threats against Judge Engeron's wife and Judge Engeron's clerk by Trump Wednesday that got the appeals court in New York to realize, hey, maybe we're enabling madness and potential violence. Undaunted by reality, Trump reposted all of those anti-Trump memes the idiot Laura Loomer has falsely attributed to Engeron's wife, and now the two of them have mixed in the judge's son. It would be the highlight of my year if Mrs. Engeron now sues Loomer and Trump for slander or comes out and says she actually supports Republicans or something. Trump was also good enough to repost video from the fascist Hodge twins, captioned, The Capitol cops beat the hell out of innocent J6 protesters. The cops should be charged and the protesters should be freed. So file that for the next time you hear any Republican mention law and order. And now Alina Haba is in trouble. Alice Bianco, who used to be a server at Trump's golf course and graveyard in Bedminster, New Jersey, has sued for sexual harassment by the beverage manager, Pavel. When a colleague wrote a letter about Bianco's plight, it got to Alina Haba, and according to Ms. Bianco, Haba, quote, pretending to be a friend, approached Bianco and tricked her into signing a non-disclosure agreement. Pretending to be a friend? How about pretending to be a lawyer? Haba gave this response to Politico. I always conduct myself ethically, and I acted no differently in this circumstance. And if that isn't a non-denial denial, my name ain't Ben Bradley. Speaking of which, the Washington Post offers a nice little slice of life. Shay Trump. Kevin McCarthy told friends, the Post reports, that after Trump sat on his hands while McCarthy's speakerships was decapitated... Trump told McCarthy by phone that he would have called Matt Gates off, but McCarthy had failed to expunge Trump's impeachments. So McCarthy allegedly says he told Trump, quote, F you, only the full F, the full Elon Musk F. McCarthy denies this. Or he doesn't remember. And then there are these last two stories, and I do not think they got the attention they deserved. The British magazine The Economist teamed up with YouGov, November 25th, 26th, 27, polled 1,500 U.S. citizens on the presidential vote. The outcome, 44-42. That's 44-42 Biden. And lastly, there's what Meredith McGraw and Adam Kankren wrote yesterday in Politico, and since it's basically what I said on the first episode this week, but I'm just a guy with a podcast, let me read it. 
part of it. Headline, quote, the 543-word editorial that may have just upended the presidential campaign. Subheadline, the post by Trump calling for Obamacare's replacement has lit a fire under Biden's slow burn campaign. The editorial referred to, of course, is the one from the Wall Street Journal last week reminding Trump that he did not kill Obamacare. I put it here thusly, just when Trump and Biden and events had tilted the entire profile of the election into things that favored Trump, Trump just brought back from the dead what might be the last issue in which Democrats completely kick Republican ass. An NBC poll two months ago said Democrats are trusted by two to one over Republicans on health care to sum it up as an unnamed Biden advisor told NBC. It's almost perfect. Politico quoted the chair of a Democratic support group saying Trump's, quote, opening up a Pandora's box of hurt. It's a story that tells itself. And it not only revivified the issue, it revivified Biden's campaign. That's the gist of what Politico is reporting. Emails went out, mass emails to reporters, to sponsors, to voters within hours. Nancy Pelosi got on a press call Tuesday. Biden hit Trump on video Wednesday. Commercials are already running on the state level Thursday. And if that were not enough good news yesterday... The Wall Street Journal ran another editorial on Obamacare, and in it, it attacked Trump for his failure to repeal and his failed response to their first editorial, whereupon Trump replied by attacking the Wall Street Journal, called the paper, quote, globalist, and the editorial page a mess. That's the editorial page whose editorial about Obamacare got him so excited that he again vowed to replace Obamacare and thus revitalize that issue and the Biden campaign. And I have not fully diagrammed this bizarre confluence of events, but I think the gist of it is, if Joe Biden is reelected, we can now thank the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Also of interest here, it's almost as if I wrote this next story. He is the head of the Florida Republican Party. She is an unidentified friend who has just alleged he raped and battered her. And the other she is his wife, the co-founder of Moms for Liberty. And the first her... Her other allegation is that they had a long-standing three-way relationship, and he used his phone to take video of the two hers having sex. But thank God we have moms for liberty to make sure nobody ever has two mommies. That's next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown. Are you rolling? The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Take 2B1, December 1st, 54321. This is Countdown with Keith Elberman. Postscripts to the news. Some headlines, some updates, some snark, some predictions. Dateline Washington in a wonderfully contentious episode that Frank Capra III is not going to include in any remake he may dream up of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The Senate Judiciary Committee actually did something about our corrupt Supreme Religious Court. It has issued subpoenas to Harlan Crow, the owner and operator of Justice Clarence Thomas, and Leonard Leo, owner and operator of a whole string of justices, from Sam Alito to Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm not proud to say a fellow member of our Cornell Alumni Association. Ah, well, they can't all be Ann Coltergeist. Anyway, Republicans tried to stall the subpoena votes, then tried to bury them under 200 amendments, then tried to shout down the roll call, and then when they had nothing left, they all ran away instead of voting. It's their ethos. Senator John Cornyn told Chairman Dick Durbin, the man behind this new Democratic idea of actually doing something... Quote, you just destroyed one of the most important committees in the United States Senate. Congratulations on destroying the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. That, mind you, was from a Republican senator. Republican. The party that tried to destroy democracy in 2020 and is trying it again as we speak. Shut up. For his part, Leonard Leo, Cornell 86, 
And it's always these guys with the, we were too poor to afford more syllables names, guys. Hugh Hewitt, Eric Erickson, Leonard Leo. Anyway, Leonard issued a statement too, quote, Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats have been destroying the Supreme Court. Now they are destroying the Senate. I will not cooperate with this unlawful campaign of political retribution, unquote. Cool. Contempt of the Senate. Cool. Arrest him. Arrest Leonard Leo. Drag him out by his frickin' shoes. Dateline Rome, Georgia, the blockbuster Marjorie Taylor Green book, I Am Not Barney Rubble. Uh, no, sorry, I got the title wrong. She went with MTG, which is the acronym for the card game Magic the Gathering. Why she chose that, I have no idea. Anywho, the book is just going gangbusters. Published by Trump Jr.'s new publishing house, well, outhouse, this is one of those books that right-wing groups usually snap up by the tens of thousands and make into a New York Times bestseller and then give away like free pens. But something has come a cropper in this ecosystem because the Circana Book Scan system, which presents an actual record of how many books were sold to the public, has presented its data for MTG's first week on the shelves. Short version, it's still on the shelves. From November 19th through November 25th, Marjorie's story sold 352 copies. 352. That's 50 a day. Frankly, I didn't know that 50 a day of her fans could read. And Dateline Kent, Connecticut. He actually was a big sports fan, big enough that the New York Yankees yesterday put out a statement lauding him, naturally, because they are actually the New York fascists. He also once did a tourism commercial for the city of New York in which a stunt double ran the bases and slid headfirst into the plate at Yankee Stadium. And in the only endearing thing he ever did other than date the actress Jill St. John, he did a commercial for the New York Times sports section in which he claimed his true goal in life was to have become a National Football League play-by-play TV announcer so that he could have called field goal attempts and say, it's up. And it's good. Henry Kissinger is dead at age 100, and I have only one other thing to say. Are you sure? Duncan Nancy Faust! of us on an all-new edition of Countdown, Fridays with Thurber, and fittingly, given that MSNBC stuff, James Thurber mostly stuck to fiction or slightly fictionalized reality, but occasionally he ventured into cultural criticism, even media criticism, and it is delightfully mean-spirited, something I've never read aloud previously, The Secret Life of James Thurber, which, despite the title, is actually an attack on, of all people, the surrealist painter Salvador Dali. Coming up. 
First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. That was my Dolly impression. The bronze, worse, Tucker Carlson. Remember Tucker Carlson? Tucker Carlson launched his fascist website, The Daily Caller, about 13, 14 years ago with a bang. He opened another website using my name, then impersonated me, stole my identity to do an email interview with a rather gullible Philadelphia Daily News columnist named Stu Bykofsky. Bykofsky printed the interview as if it was with me, and Bykofsky and the paper had to retract it or I would have owned the Philadelphia Daily News and I might have been my high school friend Will Bunch's boss. Anyhow, the Daily Beast has found tax documents that indicate Tucker Carlson has been kicked out of the site, is off the board of the Daily Caller, and those initials were for Tucker Carlson, TC. And it may have happened as long ago as a year next week, because even the fascists can smell a rotting corpse. By the way, the Daily Beast also found that the Daily Caller took $707,000 in COVID workplace loans and applied to have them forgiven by the Biden administration, and they were forgiven, so thanks, Biden. Worser, Lana Burkhart, a 20-year-old woman who we find from the good folks at popularinformation.com, testified to the school board in Conroe, Texas, that seeing one drawing of a kiss between two heterosexual cartoon characters in one of those scholastic books for kids, seeing one kiss when she was 11 years old, led her to an addiction to pornography, and that by the age of 13, she was contemplating suicide. And so the Conroe School Board must remove all scholastic books from its schools and its school book fairs. And that a good alternative for the school board would be to switch to the nonprofit independent Sky Tree book fairs. Well, according to popular information, turns out Ms. Burkhart's recommendation switched to Skytree books, left out a couple of key details. One, she was homeschooled. So it must have been mom who gave her that deadly book, not the school district. Two, about Skytree books, it, quote, appears to be a hastily assembled offshoot of Brave books, Brave Books just happens to publish kids' books written by right-wingers and religious nuts and Chaya Rachik and Jack Posobiec and Kevin Sorbo and other Trump fellators. The president of Skytree was an executive assistant at Brave Books until earlier this year. And as to poor Ms. Burkhart and her story of going to hell, looking at a guy kissing a girl, she turns out to be an employee at Brave Books. In fact, she's public relations coordinator. In other words, the book banners have mutated. They are now book banners for profit. Which leads to our winners, the worst. Speaking of book banners, Moms for Liberty, that's Moms for Hitler Liberty, co-founder Bridget Ziegler, and her husband, the new chair of the Florida GOP, Christian Ziegler. Bridget Ziegler was also there by the podium when Ron DeSantis signed Florida's Don't Say Gay Laws. Per the Sarasota Herald Tribune and the Florida Trident, Sarasota police are currently investigating allegations against Christian Ziegler. No charges yet, but they've gotten a search warrant and they are examining his phone now. Allegations from a local woman accusing Christian Ziegler of sexual battery and, according to the Trident, rape. And the unredacted words in one part of the police report are, quote, stated 
raped, stated that, raped, unquote. Sadly, this part of the story is all too common. There is a psychological condition in which really sick people often spend their lives trying basically to make sure that they can prove that other people are way more sick than they are and that their efforts to persecute those people more than compensate for their own evil, at least in their own minds, so that they can rationalize that they are, in effect, not net evil. Don't know if either of the Ziegler's fit that description. But I haven't told you the kicker to this story yet. Sit down. The alleged victim also told police that she was not exactly a stranger, either to Florida Republican Chairman Mr. Ziegler or Moms for Liberty co-founder Mrs. Ziegler. She, quote, alleged that she and both Ziegler's had been involved in a long-standing consensual three-way sexual relationship prior to the incident. Unquote. Oh, so moms for liberty. It's that kind of liberty, huh? Waka, waka, waka. Christian Florida Republican man Ziegler and his wife Bridget Ziegler. Just remember in Florida, don't say gay. But if you want to say bye, bye apparently is okay. Today's worst persons in the world. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. with Thurber now, and as I believe I mentioned, Thurber stuck mostly to, besides the cartoons and drawings that made him famous in one part of the world, his short stories and other works of fiction that made him famous in the rest of the world. But every once in a while, he would get really ticked off by something going on in real life. He would delve into cultural criticism. He wrote pieces about how bad radio was in the 1940s, particularly as he began to lose more and more of his vision. And periodically, he would have at other authors, especially if he thought their work was crap. And in that context, I bring to you The Secret Life of James Thurber by James Thurber. I have only dipped here and there into Salvador Dali's The Secret Life of Salvador Dali with paintings by Salvador Dali and photographs of Salvador Dali because anyone afflicted with what my grandmother's sister Abigail called the permanent jumps should do no more than skitter through such an autobiography, particularly in these melancholy times. One does not have to skitter far before one comes upon some vignette which gives the full shape and flavor of the book. The youthful dreamer of dreams, biting a sick bat or kissing a dead horse. The slender stripling going into man's estate with the high hope and fond desire of one day eating a live but roasted turkey and sighing lover covering himself with goat dung and aspic, that he might give off the true and noble odor of the ram. In my flying trip through Dali, I caught other glimpses of the great man, Salvador adoring a seed ball fallen from a plane tree, Salvador kicking a tiny playmate off a bridge, Salvador caressing a crutch, Salvador breaking the old family doctor's glasses with a leather-thonged mattress beater, There would appear to be only two things in the world that revolt him, and I don't mean a long-dead hedgehog. He is squeamish about skeletons and grasshoppers. Oh, well, we all have our idiosyncrasies. Senor Dali's memories have set me to thinking. I find myself muttering as I shave, and on two occasions I have swung my crutch at a little neighbor girl on my way to the post office. Senor Dali's book sells for $6. My own published personal history, Harper and Brothers, 1933, sold for $1.75. At the time, I complained briefly about this unusual figure, principally on the ground that it represented only 50 cents more than the price asked for a book called The Adventures of Horace the Hedgehog, published the same month. The publishers explained that the price was a closely approximated vertical prefigured on the basis of profitable sailing, which in turn was arrived at by taking into consideration the effect on diminishing returns of the horizontal factor. 
In those days, all heads of business firms adopted a guarded kind of double talk, commonly expressed in low, muffled tones, because nobody knew what was going to happen and nobody understood what had Big business had been frightened by a sequence of economic phenomena, which had clearly demonstrated that our civilization was in greater danger of being turned off than of gradually crumbling away. The upshot of it all was that I accepted the price of $1.75. In so doing, I accepted the state of the world as a proper standard by which the price of books should be fixed. And now, with the world in 10 times as serious a condition as it was in 1933, Dolly's publishers set a price of $6 on his life story. This brings me to the inescapable conclusion that the price-fixing principle in the field of literature is not global, but personal. The trouble, quite simply, is that I told too much about what went on in the house I lived in and not enough about what went on inside myself. Let me be the first to admit that the naked truth about me is to the naked truth about Salvador Dali as an old ukulele in the attic is to a piano in a tree. And I mean a piano with breasts. Senor Dali has the jump on me from the beginning. He remembers and describes in detail what it was like in the womb. My own earliest memory is of accompanying my father to a polling booth in Columbus, Ohio, where he voted for William McKinley. It was a drab and somewhat battered tin shed set on wheels, and it was filled with guffawing men and cigar smoke, all in all as far removed from the paradisiacal placenta of Salvador Dali's first recollection as could well be imagined. A fat, jolly man dandled me on his knee and said that I would soon be old enough to vote against William Jennings Bryan. I thought he meant that I could push a folded piece of paper into the slot of the padlocked box as soon as my father was finished. When this turned out not to be true, I had to be carried out of the place, kicking and screaming. In my struggles, I knocked my father's derby off several times. The derby was not a monstrously exciting love object to me, as practically everything Salvador encountered was to him, and I doubt, if I had that day to live over again, that I could bring myself, even in the light of exotic dedication as I now know it, to conceive an intense and perverse affection for the Derby. It remains obstinately in my memory as a rather funny hat, a little too large in the crown, which gave my father the appearance of a tired, sensitive gentleman who had been persuaded against his will to take part in a game of charades. We lived on Champion Avenue at the time, and the voting booth was on Mound Street. As I set down these names, I began to perceive an essential and important difference between the infant Salvador and the infant me. This difference can be stated in terms of environment. Salvador was brought up in Spain, a country colored by the legends of Hannibal, El Greco, and Cervantes. I was brought up in Ohio, a region steeped in the traditions of Coxey's Army, the Anti-Saloon League, and William Howard Taft. It is only natural that the weather in little Salvador's soul should have been stirred by stranger winds and enveloped in more fantastic mists than the weather in my own soul. But enough of mewling apology for my lackluster early years. Let us get back to my secret life 
such as it was, stopping just long enough to have another brief look at Senor Dali on our way. Salvador Dali's mind goes back to a childhood half-imagined and half-real in which the edges of actuality were sometimes less sharp than the edges of dream. He seems somehow to have got the idea that this sets him off from Harry Spencer, Charlie Dokes, I. Feinberg, J.J. McNabo, William Faulkner, Herbert Hoover, and me. What Salvi had that the rest of us kids didn't was the perfect scenery, characters, and costumes for his desperate little rebellion against the clean, the conventional, and the comfortable. He put perfume on his hair, which would have cost him his life in, say, Bayonne, New Jersey, or Youngstown, Ohio. He owned a lizard with two tails, he wore silver buttons on his shoes, and he knew, or imagined he knew, little girls called Galuchka and Dulita. Thus, he was born halfway along the road to paranoia. The soft expression of his prayers, the melting ahs of his oblations, the capital, to put it so that you can see what I'm trying to say, of his heart's desire. Or so, anyway, it must seem to a native of Columbus, Ohio, who as a youngster bought his $12 suits at the F&R Lazarus Company, had his hair washed out with ivory soap, owned a bull terrier with only one tail, and played nicely and, and a bit diffidently with little girls named Irma and Betty and Ruby. Another advantage that the young Dali had over me, from the standpoint of impetus towards paranoia, lay in the nature of the adults who peopled his real world. There was, in Dali's hometown of Figueras, a family of artists named Pichot, musicians, painters, and poets, all of whom adored the ground that the Enfant Terrible walked on. If one of them came upon him throwing himself from a high rock, a favorite relaxation of our hero, or hanging by his feet with his head immersed in a pail of water, the wild news was spread about the town that greatness and genius had come to Figueras. There was a woman who put on a look of maternal interest when Salvador threw rocks at her. The mayor of the town fell dead one day at the boy's feet. A doctor in the community, not the one he had horsewhipped, was seized of a fit and attempted to beat him up. The contention that the doctor was out of his senses at the time of the assault is Dolly's, not mine. The adults around me when I was in short pants were neither so glamorous nor so attentive. They consisted mainly of 11 maternal great aunts, all Methodists, who were staunch believers in physic, mustard plasters, and scripture. And it was part of their dogma that artistic tendencies should be treated in the same way as hiccups or hysterics. None of them was an artist, unless you can count Aunt Lou, who wrote 16 stress verse with hit and miss rhymes in celebration of people's birthdays or on occasion of great national disaster. It never occurred to me to bite a bat in my aunt's presence or to throw stones at them. There was one escape, though, my secret world of idiom. Two years ago, my wife and I, looking for a house to buy, called on a firm of real estate agents in New Milford. One of the members of the firm, scrabbling through a metal box containing many keys, looked up to say, The key to the Roxbury house isn't here. 
His partner replied, It's a common lock. A skeleton will let you in. I was suddenly once again five years old. With a wide eye and open mouth, I pictured the Roxbury house as I would have pictured it as a small boy, a house of such dark and nameless horrors as have never crossed the mind of our little bat-biter. It was of sentences like that, nonchalantly tossed off by real estate dealers, great aunts, clergymen, and other such prosaic persons, that the enchanted private world of my early boyhood was made. In this world, businessmen who phoned their wives to say that they were tied up at the office sat roped to their swivel chairs and probably gagged, unable to move or speak except somehow, miraculously, to telephone. Hundreds of thousands of businessmen tied to their chairs in hundreds of thousands of offices in every city of my fantastic cosmos. An especially fine note about the binding of all the businessmen in all the cities was that whoever did it always did it around five o'clock in the afternoon. Then there was the man who left town under a cloud. Sometimes I saw him all wrapped up in the cloud and invisible like a cat in a burlap sack. At other times it floated about the size of a sofa, three or four feet above his head, following him wherever he went. One could think about the man under the cloud before going to sleep. An image of him wandering around from town to town was a sure soporific. Not so the mental picture of a certain Mrs. Houston, who had been terribly cut up when her daughter died on the operating table. I could see the doctors too vividly just before they set upon Mrs. Houston with their knives, and I could hear them, Now, Mrs. Houston, will we get up on the table like a good girl, or will we have to be put there? I could usually fight off Mrs. Houston before I went to sleep, but she frequently got into my dreams, and sometimes she still does. I remember the grotesque creature that came to haunt my meditations when one evening my father said to my mother, What did Mrs. Johnson say when you told her about Betty? And my mother replied, Oh, she was all ears. There were many other wonderful figures in the secret surrealist landscapes of my youth. The old lady was always up in the air the husband who did not seem to be able to put his foot down, the man who lost his head during a fire but was still able to run out of the house yelling, the young lady who was in reality a soiled dove. It was a world that of necessity one had to keep to oneself and brood over in silence because it would fall to pieces at the touch of words. If you brought it out into the light of actual day and put it to the test of questions, your parents would try to laugh the miracles away, or they would take your temperature and put you to bed. Since I always ran a temperature, whenever it was taken, I was put to bed and left there alone with Mrs. Houston. Such a world as the world of my childhood is, alas, not year-proof. It is a ghost that, to use Henley's words, gleams flickers, vanishes away. I think it must have been the time my little cousin Francis came to visit us that it began surely and forever to dissolve. I came into the house one rainy dusk and asked where Francis was. She is, said our cook, up in the front room. 
crying her heart out. The fact that a person could cry so hard that his heart would come out of his body as perfectly shaped and glossy as a red velvet pin cushion was news to me. For some reason, I had never heard the expression so common in American families whose hopes and dreams run so often counter to attainment. I went upstairs and opened the door of the front room. Francis, who was three years older than I, jumped off the bed and ran past me sobbing and down the stairs. My search for her heart took some 15 minutes. I tore the bed apart and kicked up the rugs and even looked in the bureau drawers. It was no good. I looked out the window at the rain and the darkening sky. My cherished mental image of the man under the cloud began to grow dim and fade away. I discovered that all alone in a room, I could face the thought of Mrs. Houston with cold equanimity. Downstairs, in the living room, Francis was still crying. I began to laugh. Ah, there, Salvador! The Secret Life of James Thurber by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Elderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on the guitars, bass, and drums. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, were arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music, courtesy of ESPN Inc., was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 1060th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is Tuesday, bulletins as the news warrants. Tomorrow, by the way, is my dog Rose's 10th birthday. Happy birthday, Rose. Maybe I can talk you into subscribing to the podcast this year. Till the next one, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.